Hey, CityCast listeners. It's Friday, and it's also St. Patrick's Day. So I hope wherever you are in the city that you have on some green. I'm here today with CityCast contributor Evan Mintz and producer A.K. Almoman to chat about this week's news. We had a lot going on this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this news that you didn't have to sit there and read. It's Friday, March 17th. I'm Carleon Jones, and here's what Houston's talking about today. Good morning, AK and Evan. How are y'all today? Good morning. I'm doing all right. Doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy it's Friday. So let's get into some news. Evan, what was your biggest story this week? The biggest story for me this week was reporting about the attempted creation of preservation districts in the city of Houston. But don't be fooled by the name. These things are backdoor zoning and should be opposed. They are Mm. antithetical to everything that Houston does well, and we need to put a stop to it right now. Okay, what does this mean? What's going on? So preservation districts are an attempt to allow neighborhoods to regulate how people can build within those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Things like building height or lot size or parking or fences or basic architectural design or when you can tear down buildings. But all of this is going to be a citywide ordinance just to attempt to get at issues in a few key neighborhoods. The point Mm -hmm. of it is to try to prevent gentrification, but it won't work. Because every single place we've seen uh, cities try to put regulations on how you can build, what happens is that people with money come in, buy up housing, and push people out who live there already. And the Chronicle's own reporting on this said that uh, it just won't work, that regulating density or appearance of new housing construction does not make a gentrifying area less desirable. And in fact, it can make it more desirable because of artificial constraints on housing supply. Mm -hmm. So basically, this is something that's supposed to prevent gentrification, but it's actually going to cause gentrification. Exactly. You know, just um, look throughout Third Ward, you see all these big townhouses going up, but you Mm -hmm. get six townhouses on one lot. If you make it so you can't build townhouses, you're just going to get people buying up six lots to build their homes. Mm, Okay. And the thing that Houston has done really well to prevent gentrification is allowing easy development. You create these big capital sponges that soak up people's money, whether it's townhouses, whether it's condos. It's the fact that we make it easy to build. We flood the market with housing so you don't push capital off into other neighborhoods. I mean, look what's happened in uh, east uh, of downtown in Austin, Mm -hmm. where neighborhoods have flipped because there's nowhere else for the money to go. For as long as we live in a capitalist society, we have to play by the rules. And the rules are that money is going to flow. So create a place for that money to flow to. Yeah. So how how do you think would be a better possible method for anti-gentrification people? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. One, rely more on community development corporations where you really have community input into what we are building. Two, just try to find ways to raise the money to buy the structures that you want to preserve. Look at something like uh, Project Row Houses and Third Board. I think it's a good example. But also... Three is just make it really easy to build homes in other places so that money goes there. I mean, imagine how much money would flow into River Oaks if you tried to build more high rises in River Oaks. Mm -hmm. Imagine where the money would go in West U if you upzoned West U, a place that actually does have zoning. 
those sorts of things, I think, are do, going to do a better job of preserving neighborhoods in third ward or acres homes. But there's also another thing that we need to talk about, too, which is that a lot of these neighborhoods, particularly third ward, Freedmanstown, they are past their peak population. Gentrification has already happened. And what the city is trying to do right now is closing a barn door after the horses are out. Like, it's gone. Mm. If there are specific structures we want to preserve, we should preserve those structures. But people have moved out. And it's often intergenerational movement, too. Folks aren't being forced out of their homes. But that next generation of kids, they decide where do they want to live. They look maybe out in the suburbs. They look in another neighborhood. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Like we had a episode over Freedmanstown a couple weeks ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And when they were telling us how it decreased from like 500 buildings to like 50 buildings, mm-hmm. I was just I was just taken aback from that because it's just like mm-hmm. how gentrification really just removes and it just erases things from mm-hmm. not from history all completely. But like a lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people have never heard of this town. And I was just like, mm-hmm. wow, like. This really took a big effect. So, yeah, I, yeah, I understand true. where you're coming from. But also, neighborhoods change. You know, Third Ward used to be a Jewish neighborhood. North mm-hmm. of downtown used to be Germantown. You know, things change in the city, and it's not necessarily bad. You want to be growing and dynamic and exciting. Of Houston course. is a city defined by its people, not by its buildings. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. true. I mean, also, we did have a show with some community developers who are like mm-hmm. dedicating the next like 10, 15 years of their life to kind of reshaping a neighborhood in the second ward to mm-hmm. basically not be as gentrified, be available to the community that's already there at an affordable mm-hmm. price. But it seems difficult. Mm-hmm. It seems like time consuming in a way where I feel where it seems like these short-term solutions like preservation seem good on paper, but Mm -hmm. don't deliver on the promises that like long-term projects do, which Houston really needs more of, right? You've mentioned this, Evan, multiple times on the show that just Houston needs more foresight about the next 50 to 100 years. We, We absolutely do. And I think that a rule like this which opens the door to making it more difficult to build in a city at a time when we need more housing is suffers from a lack of foresight. But I will say that something that I think is missing from this larger conversation is the fact that people who live in these neighborhoods often lack access to capital to become developers themselves. You know, say Mm. you see that empty lot and you think to yourself, I could build something there that I would want to live in, that I think would be successful. But historically, black communities, Hispanic communities have not had the access to capital necessary to become developers. And I I, just to do a little self-promotion, Arnold Ventures, where I work, Uh, is partnering right now with Community Housing Capital out of Georgia to provide $34 million to developers of color to build Mm. low-income housing in communities across the South to try to bridge that gap and provide something that hasn't been there for decades. And this might be a a way to get into it, to identify the developers who can build the housing, can build the commercial structures that people want, that don't feel like someone else is coming from somewhere else and telling you what you have to live next to. But that's something that isn't going to be solved by this new rule that the city is trying to come up with. I think the city needs to scrap this whole plan, go back to square one and figure out what is it that we're actually trying to do here and what can we create that will make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I love that your job is doing that because that's amazing. That is definitely amazing. Okay, AK, let's go to you. What was your biggest story of this week? 
I think the biggest story is pr pretty obvious, or at least mine, is T has finally decided that they're going to take over HISD school district, the eighth largest school district in the country. And um, this has riled up a bunch of activists, teachers, school unions, democratic leadership at a local and at a state level. They believe that this is literally taking the democratic process of education out of one of the largest and most diverse communities in the city. Uh, there were buses that drove out to Austin to protest this, but they were mm -hmm. also protesting um, Greg Abbott's grandiose plan of school vouchers and school choice. Um, and it seems like this is a part of that cultural war to a certain extent. There's this belief that the school board, board of trustees that have become quote unquote from the, mm -hmm. from the right side, quote unquote, too progressive to run these schools are not giving people the options and are also failing our students. That's not particularly true in the process of T trying to take over uh, the one school that had a marking of F has now gone back to C. 94% of all the schools in HISD are in A, B, or C. No Ds are under 94% of the schools under HISD. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of advocates, it seems to be punishing HISD for a successful two years post the pandemic. Greg Abbott tried to kind of pull himself away from this entire issue by saying this has nothing to do with school vouchers, this has nothing to do with school choice. But the moment the protesters who came for HIZ to have its own democratically elected board of trustees remain there, multiple protesters who are pro-school choice were there advocating for removing critical race theory from school, removing this idea that like trans kids are being forced to be trans kids by the by the education system. Uh, so they've injected all of these ideas into this like grand crusade of kind of taking over HISD. And a lot of democratic lawmakers are saying that uh, this is uh, the process of like trying to demonize public schooling as Greg mm -hmm. Abbott and the Republican controlled Senate at, in Austin is trying to privatize schooling. You know, the, the whole thing is definitely nuts because they could point to a, a moment in history where, yes, you did have these schools that, according to the laws, were failing and you would have done the takeover then. Mm -hmm. But it passed. The moment passed. The schools did better. And here we are now. So what is it they're trying to fix? Exactly. The problem has already been repaired. And, you know, it's not as if Texas school districts don't have school choice already. You mm -hmm. can choose your campuses within districts. Students can transfer between districts. You also have charter schools. You know, if you're on the, the side of school choice, congrats, you won. We're there. What we're seeing now is just the idea that taxpayer dollars should be able to flow to institutions that purport to provide education without any oversight without any accountability. Here's what I want to know. If we get school vouchers and some private school starts failing, is Mike Morath going to take over that school? Exactly. You know, if some kid is using uh, the money at home to be homeschooled and watch some tutoring programs online and doesn't get a, a good outcome on standardized tests, we're going to have Mike Morath come into that house and tell the parents what they're doing wrong? No, of course not. We're mm -hmm. being held to different standards for different reasons. It's not there. It's not just. And the real loser in this, I think, is the kids, because we're going to find ourselves in a state 
you see taxpayer dollars flowing to institutions that are not guaranteed to provide outcomes, are not held to standards, where dollars are going to be wasted simply because of some sort of philosophical adherence to the idea of vouchers rather than really looking at whether schools are working or not. And, you know, we just got out of this moment, I think about a decade or two long, where Democrats and Republicans agreed that schools should be doing better, that we should be measuring outcomes, we should be holding people to standards. Mm -hmm. And that moment has passed, that people don't agree with that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there really is a, a, a collapse of that coalition of education reform and how people are just back in their corners again. And it's really unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. And this was also my biggest story because there's so many layers to this. Like, it's just been all over the news. It's the biggest story in the news. And I saw that HISD has the right to due process, like, and have to have a hearing, basically. But it would be held by the TA. So it's just kind of like a fight that I just feel like there's no way to win it. You know, like what's the purpose of the hearing if it's going to be held by the people Mm -hmm. who have already made their mind up that they want to take it over, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, And also just just to put, you know, one more point on it is that we're all paying our property tax dollars into the school district, into HISD. And normally uh, when you pay taxes, you get a vote for the people who direct how those taxes are spent. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're going into a couple of years of taxation without representation. That's lovely. Yeah. You know, usually people have uh, revolutions over that sort of thing. Now I've got to sit here and put up with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems odd that Republican lawmakers are abandoning that uh, large ideal of theirs. But I just want to say one other thing, other than just the shadiness that T has gone through with this process, talking behind closed doors, never making an actual assessment or something to go speak to the parents or whatever. The other thing is T has taken over 15 schools. Two of them are still under their control. Eight have been returned to the Board of Trustees, but five have been completely shuttered. So that's not a great track record for what we're looking at moving forward. So I just wanted to point that out. Oh, wow, yeah. I heard that they did not have the best record. Mm -hmm. Let's move to the most underrated story. Evan, what was underrated for you? So the underrated story for me this week is that today is St. Patrick's Day. And every St. Patrick's Day, I like to bring attention to the historically overlooked Mayor Thomas Scanlon. Thomas Scanlon was a Reconstruction era mayor of Houston who integrated City Hall, who integrated the police department, and yet he is largely overlooked by history. He was born in Limerick, Ireland before moving to Houston, and I think he should be a renowned figure in the history of Houston and specifically the Irish history of Houston. But instead, Mm -hmm. what happened is that Houston chose to lionize Dick Dowling as our uh, representative of Irish immigrants. Dowling was a Confederate soldier who fought at the Battle of Galveston. Now, he also was a notable bartender, uh, and I think there is some historic significance to that. But issue aside, that they even renamed streets in the Third Ward after Dowling. You know, mm-hmm. Emancipation mm-hmm. Avenue used to be Dowling. And Toome, which was the uh, the city where he was born in Ireland, is named after him, too. And it's kind of significant that these two streets cutting through a black neighborhood were named after a Confederate soldier. These street renamings were done out of spite. Mm. It is a representation with Dowling of the integration of the Irish as white as unified front against the black community. We have to go back and correct that by holding up Mayor Scanlon as someone who embodied American ideals of integration, of tolerance, of diversity, 
of freedom and welcoming people to our city from across the world. I think that every St. Patrick's Day in Houston should be Thomas Scanlon Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would there be fun. Yeah. Got that a little history fun. lesson right there. Yeah. I love history. So happy St. Patrick's like Day, this. y'all. Yeah. Okay. What about you, AK? What was your underrated story? I want to talk about how sometimes the metro and our public transit in Houston is an afterthought in a lot of the things that we want to do, even when the chair, the former chairman of the metro decides to run for mayor. Uh, so Gilbert Garcia is the former chairman uh, for Houston Metro, and he is uh, he is not a Houston native. Uh, He runs a management and wealth fund from Corpus Christi. He was assigned as kind of an afterthought to the Houston Metro at a period of time where they were running into a lot of financial and ethics issues. And he kind of just used his economics background to kind of reshake and reshuffle and redesign kind of the Metro and how it works, which is a very nice thing to do. He still suffered from the same roadblocks of trying to expand public transportation. And now he is running not on the idea that he wants to expand public transit, but that the model that he used to stabilize Metro, which is essentially a toy train system that we have in our city at this Mm -hmm. point. I'm sorry, Evan. (laughs) I I feel like I upset you, but I feel like it's too small and we should just expand it. Uh, But he is running on the fact that he can do the same shakeup for the city of Houston, that he can redesign how we do our funding and such and such. And I feel like this would have been a great opportunity to sell us on the idea that we do need more public transportation in the city of Houston. And even the chairman of the metro had it as a back burner in the back of his head. So I just was uh, was excited at first when I read the headline, then read more details and kind of was brought back down to earth to be reminded where we still live. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. How often do you take mass transit in Houston? A lot. My four yeah. years of college, I uh-huh. did not own a car. I mm-hmm. rode the metro every day to school and I rode mm-hmm. it every day to work in East Downtown. Okay. If it extended a little further, I would have never needed to ride a bus or an Uber. Like I rode the bus a lot as well, but yeah. if I needed to get somewhere very quickly, either my friend would pick me up or I would take mm-hmm. an Uber. Uh, it's not easy to take a bus to Montrose sometimes. So, Well, you just take the 82. Is it one ride? I thought there was a transition in the middle. Well, I well, some, sometimes you got to change buses. You yeah. know, that's how the whole metro system is set up on a grid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it. I think that the buses get a bad reputation for being mm. places where crime could happen, quote unquote, crime could happen. I don't think that that is true. I, I don't find crimes happening on the buses. I do find that they sometimes smell like pee. Uh, um, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and like tr- when, whenever I, I rarely take the, the bus in Houston, I rarely take light rail. You know, every now and then I'll find myself in a situation where it's the most convenient thing to do. And my biggest takeaway is that I, I would find Metro to be much more enjoyable if it didn't smell like pee. <laughs> okay, I don't want to get into criticizing the larger city of Houston, but downtown is not a, a, like an aromatic fantasy here. It is. <laughs> it, it will attack your senses a lot of times. So I feel like maybe that's a that's an extension of downtown Houston. Okay, I could take that. Okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay, so my underrated story is that 
The House Criminal Committee voted unanimously to pass a bill that will remove the risk of arrest or jail time for low-level cannabis possession, okay? Um, This would also allow people to eventually erase cannabis issues from their criminal record. And I think this is amazing, honestly, because... It's amazing. Yeah, like, our, our jails are populated, populated with a lot of people who have low-level convictions with weed. So removing this would, like, depopulate the jail some. And then it just also would, like, bring some people out of jail who just, I I don't know, I just personally don't feel like they need to be in jail, you know? So um, it's still not completely passed all the way through the House. The bill has to go to the House Calendars Committee. Um, It's scheduled for the floor action soon. So we'll have to kind of still watch it, see if it really makes it through. But the decriminalization of weed in Texas would be amazing. I don't know if it's going to set the scene for us to actually like legalize weed here. But we'll see. (laughs) You know, I got to say that this may have a significant impact in other counties, but in Harris County right now, there's no more than a handful of people who are in the jail at any moment on a misdemeanor, let alone possession of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And even when I was in the DA's office uh, back in 2011, you would rarely see POM charges. And the DA since then have gone out of their way to say that we want to do diversion around these. We don't want to charge these. Like this isn't going to be uh, the sort of thing that we're going to consume our time with. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's a good step in the right direction. I don't think it's going to have any significant impact on the jail population. But I do think taking a uh, piggybacking off of Evan's point, I do think that Harris County's decision to kind of understand the futility of these prosecutions or pursuing these as legal charges is mm-hmm. really like a pilot program for how we convince the rest of the state to decriminalize this because it is a waste of resources. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely is. And I think that uh, already under state law, uh, police officers have the discretion to give people a ticket for possession of marijuana for a site and release. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it falls on law enforcement to, to say that this is how we're going to be treating it from now on. Mm-hmm. Now, the state could and should come down and change uh, how we uh, deal with this. But there's already a lot of flexibility in the system. Mm-hmm. I just feel like maybe I know so many people that actually go to jail for this stuff. So mm-hmm. they may not really? stay like that. Yeah, they can bond out typically. Like it's not like mm-hmm. anything that they have to just be there for a long time for. But I know a lot of people that if they get pulled over at something in the car, like they're going to jail and it's like they don't. Yeah, they're going to that. jail for a night. Yeah. yeah. Hold it, holdings for a night or something. Yeah. No, I mean, that's you have this constant churn uh, of it, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't necessarily add to like the. The constant population. And so mm-hmm. we don't want to see people arrested for it. Like that's mm-hmm. bad. It is a bad use of uh, police officer time. It's a bad use of jail resources mm-hmm. and it inflicts harm on people that should not be harmed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I think that's maybe the way we want to get at it is just stop arresting people for marijuana. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, yeah. it has no purpose other than to put a bunch of people on probation and mm-hmm. affect their futures. Exactly. Because then they can't, it's like hard to get jobs. And yeah, it's just, it's a whole cycle that just kind of needs to stop, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I I agree. So, okay, let's get into something happy. Evan, what's making you happy this week? Uh, What's what's making me happy this week uh, is the lead up to March Madness. Oh, yeah. uh, 
annual college basketball tournament. Now, I am, don't really have a, a stake in this. I'm probably not going to watch any games. But I love Wait, that the what? Final Four is going to be in Houston. Okay. Uh, and I love that uh, UH has a number one seed, which really adds like some extra fun mm-hmm. narrative to this. Like, especially the make it to the Final Four, it's going to be in Houston. It's a hometown team. Like, that's exciting. And I'm, I love whenever we can get cameras on our city. Mm-hmm. I love it whenever we can get attention for something that's not like a hurricane. And so that uh, brings me joy. This whole media narrative setup that we've got going brings me joy. Now, I know there are always questions about economic displacement that happens around big events. People say that, oh, you get the Super Bowl, you get Final Four, you're going to bring a lot of business and money into the city. Like, well, are you just displacing uh, economic activity that would have happened otherwise, but now people are staying at home because everything's so crowded? Like, who knows? There's a lot of mixed uh, literature on the topic. But either way, I feel like we're really set up to have a uh, a fun Final Four in Houston. Yeah, and I feel like the reputation of the city matters at the end of the day to not be considered still a developing city, but kind of put our name out there next to some of the bigger cities in the United States. Also, go Cougs, my alma mater. My bracket <laughs> has already been decided. UH is going all the way. We're winning the chip. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm excited for some of the concerts there. I love seeing the city like, with big events here, because it's just a lot of energy here, a lot of fun. So I'm excited for it as well. Okay, Mm -hmm. AK, what about you? What was your moment of joy this week? My moment of joy is CityCast related. I want to give big props and shout outs to CityCast for for essentially sponsoring my first visit to the the rodeo, (laughs) to the Houston Rodeo Stock Show. Uh, We went for the purpose of recording a few episodes. If you want to hear my actual journal for the first time, me going to the rodeo, you should check out uh, uh, your guide to to the Houston rodeo. It's a phenomenal episode. But also, the episode that came out yesterday, The Wildest Foods at the Houston Rodeo, is in contention for my favorite episode of the year <laughs> that we've put together so far. It's the it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It's amazing, I love it. Uh, I apologize if anyone thinks I'm too corny on that show, but I just had so much fun. I enjoyed going with you, Carly, and with mm. our newsletter editor, Brooke. It was so much fun. So yeah, that was my moment to joy for this week and last week, so yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time and we ate some crazy stuff, y'all. Like when I came home, mm-hmm. I literally had a stomach ache. I'm not going to lie to you. I had a stomach ache. <laughs> we had to throw a lot of stuff away. But, you know, there was some stuff that we actually <laughs> kept. So listen to the episode so you can find out what you need to eat and what you need to leave at the stand. Oh, literally boy. at the stand. <laughs> yep. 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 Facts. Okay, so my moment of joy was also radio-related. A 18-year-old senior from Lamar Consolidated ISD named Mia Huckman broke an art record and sold wow. a... Yeah, she sold her painting for $275,000, okay? Now, snap, what's even snap, more amazing snap. is that she broke her own record. So last year, she <laughs> sold a painting for $265,000 <laughs> and this year she actually won the whole rodeo painting competition and it's amazing because it's her senior year and she said that she's Aww. been wanting to win this since she was in elementary school. So I love that, like Aww. a little full circle moment. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, coincidence, Lamar Consolidated ISD is my high school alma mater. Oh, really? This, this is my tenure. 
Yeah, this is my 10 year anniversary since graduating. And I'm so happy. Yes, yes. That is so cool. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I love that Lamar is so breeding. And not to say that I'm a talented person. I'm not trying to put myself you in the same category person. as yeah. her. But, <laughs> so. but oh, thank you. I appreciate you. But but I am so happy that we're putting out so many talented people. It's amazing. It is amazing. Like if you go look up the painting, it's called Our Last Roundup. And it is absolutely amazing. I mean, like beautiful. It's a beautiful painting. Love it. Congratulations to Mia. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was my moment of joy. Thank y'all. Thank you. See you next week. See ya. That was CityCast contributor Evan Mintz and producer AK Almoman and I, Carlyon Jones. That's a wrap for our show today here at CityCast Houston. Our lead producer is Dina Kispa. Our producers are me, Carlyon Jones, and AK Almoman. Our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis. And our music is by the band All the Kimonos. If you haven't yet, make sure that you follow us on social media at CityCast Houston. That's on Twitter and Instagram. We have some great stuff up there, especially the rodeo content. If you want to see some of the crazy things that we ate there visually, that's the spot. So make sure you get connected with us. See you next week. Bye. Wait, sorry, this is a painting? It looks so real.